Good morning. Good morning. I think spring has returned, don't you? It's chilly last night, but it's going to be 75 today. We can't really complain. Well, we are continuing our series that parallels um, what the pastors are doing in, during Lent, uh, taking our cues from a book by Bishop Thomas Pickerton, What Are We Fighting For? Coming together around what matters most in the series, as you know, in each worship service during Lent is about what really matters. And we've been sorting, trying to sort through together um, how do, how do we discern what really matters? Um, how do we do that? And we, we've been working at that, and um, fair warning, I had a long shower this morning. <laughs> um, I haven't had shower thoughts for a while. At least I haven't shared them with you. So um, I don't know what it was, if it's the spring weather or whatever, but I'm not... Yeah, I'm not trying to get in trouble today, but we'll see. Um, I got in a little bit of trouble last week. We'll come back to that, but just to kind of remind you where you were. I know some of you, where we were last week, some of you weren't here. Um, the title for the chapter today, and I know if you were in the Journey Worship Service, you heard uh, Patty Muse. Uh, we began with this beautiful, short, clip of a film of the, the Stanford crew team, eight woman crew, you know, rowing, watching them row together across a body of water. There's something incredibly gorgeous about that, uh, to see those eight young women uh, row as, as one. It's incredible. I mean, the, the synchronicity of it the unity of it, it's just beautiful. I mean, and they make it look so easy. Um, and the, the title for Bickerton's chapter this week is called uh, Paddling the Same Canoe, right? Which isn't quite as dramatic. Um, I don't know. I, I have kind of nightmares myself when I think about uh, paddling um, vessels across bodies of water. Um, I don't know how many years ago, I meant to ask him how many years ago it's been. I've, I've tried to, we, we went down to Cherokee, North Carolina for a weekend trip and my wife thought it would be lovely for us to uh, go on a rafting trip as a family without a guide. You know, they, they assured us, they assured us that the, the, the place that runs it, that this is it's not much white water, it's really easy. Um, I'm thinking it's probably about, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Our oldest son at the time was probably 14 or 15, something like that. Um, so none of us had ever done anything like that. I mean, I'd been white water rafting, but with professionals. Right, And so, you know, they told us how to do, and they gave us the important safety equipment. Thank God for that. <laughs> and I mean, thank God for that. Um, 
So we took off and, you know, we were a little shaky at first and we didn't get really much better than shaky. Um, and there really wasn't that much white water, but there was a little here and there, but we managed, but we still, if anyone was watching us, it was pretty clear we didn't know what we were doing. And we were trying, we've got, I mean, our oldest is 15, and we've got one that's 14, and one that's 12, and one that's maybe nine. And then Kim and me. And at one point, I, and I can't even remember what happened because I really think I have repressed it, although every time I think about it, I've, I break into a cold sweat, even talking about it now, it sort of messes me up. I don't remember exactly what happened but we hit just a little bit of white water, not much, and, and Peter fell out. And our raft had him pinned against a rock. And all I could see, I see his little head, you know, above the front of our raft. And I really think I'm going to kill my son. He's gonna drown. I mean, that's what I thought in that moment. Um, it was terrifying. Um, yeah, so paddling the same canoe uh, takes a little bit of coordination. It's, it's, uh, takes some practice to know what you're doing. Um, usually helps if people agree about where you're going, <laughs> right? If, uh, if six people in a raft or Three people in the canoe all have different ideas about where the canoe should be going. Things are not going to go well. I mean, hopefully you won't kill anybody, um, but it still won't go well. And so Bickerton uses this sort of image of, of rowing together and the kind of uh, what's necessary to row together, this kind of unity of purpose, unity of direction. But within that, there can be, of course, great diversity, which we've talked about last week. And we have been looking at, we started last week to begin to look at this, this motto that has uh, for a long time been used in many, many Christian circles. Um, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty and in all things, charity or love, depending on your translation. And the, the trick, of course, for the church has always been trying to be clear about what the essentials are and trying to discriminate, discern the essentials from the non-essentials. And that's not always easy. It's not always easy. And um, so the last couple of weeks, we've had some examples. We solicited some examples from you last week. And one of, the, one of the sentences we used last week was, one of Bickerton's phrases is sort of fill in the blank. You know, if blank went away, could we still be the church? Right? Well, now by that, we don't mean, could we still do church the way we used to doing it? But that's a different thing. But could we still be the church? And so a couple weeks ago, I think we agreed that if 
Five services on Sunday morning at Muncie Memorial United Methodist Church went away. We could still be the church. There'd be grumbling, right? There'd be disappointment. There would be loss. Um, but we could still be the church. And I think we all felt pretty good about that. It got harder when somebody raised last week um, religious freedom that we're used to in this country. We had to think hard about that, right? Um, because we all deeply are deeply grateful for the religious liberty that we have. Um, and we're deeply grateful for those who have sacrificed to make that liberty possible. But we also had to acknowledge that lots and lots of Christians across the ages and today don't actually have it. And so as grateful for it as we may be, and as much as we might desire to continue to have it, it would be hard to make it an essential. Right? As though if you, an essential is something, if you don't have it, then you can't be the church. Now, granted, we would have, to, if we didn't have it, we'd have to figure out how to be the church in a much different way than we're used to. Absolutely <coughs> right. Because the truth of the matter, right now, given religious liberty that we have, being a Christian in the United States most days costs me next to nothing. Whereas for other Christians around the world, it may cost you your life, literally. Not metaphor, literally. I don't desire that for myself. I don't desire that for anyone else. But it's just true, right? One of the things that might have tipped us off about that was that religious liberty is something that's a feature of our culture, our society. And I think it's the case, I want to be careful about this, but I think it's the case that there's probably nothing that's simply a feature of our culture or our society that's probably ever going to be essential, right? Because Christians have functioned in lots of different societies and lots of different cultures. So if there's a, if there's a feature of something that again, it doesn't mean it's not important. It doesn't mean that it's not valuable. It doesn't mean that we can't appreciate it. It doesn't mean that we can't embrace it. It doesn't mean any of those things. It's just we're trying to get really, really, really clear about what are the essentials. Because as Bickerton said, I mean, the question is what are we fighting for? And hopefully we're, we're, we're fighting for, we're trying to uphold the things that are most essential to the faith. And so, I mean, he listed things in his chapter last week, things such as God's grace, right? God's grace. It's hard to imagine how we can be the church apart from God's grace, apart from our relationship with God and one another made possible in and through Christ. 
it's hard to imagine without we can be the church without hope, right? Um, just despair. Um, despair is not really an option for Christians. Which doesn't mean we won't often find ourselves tempted to despair. It's just not an option for us. We have, we're called to be a people of hope. And so today we're this idea of paddling in the same canoe. We've been talking about unity for a while, so I think we don't have to, to linger as long on that. Um, but I do want to say a couple things, because it comes up in this chapter, in Essentials, Unity. And the passage that's being reflected on in the, in the worship services here at Muncie today is Paul's passage in his first letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 12 where Paul's trying to address the, the factions. He's been addressing this through the whole book. Uh, but he's pointing to the factions that have arisen in the Corinthian church. Um, it's, it's important to remind ourselves that the early church didn't have it all together. Right? I mean, it's, it's easy to kind of romanticize the past, whether the past is 50 years ago or 2,000 years ago. But the Corinthian church was broken like we're broken. I mean, or just as broken as we're broken. They may have been broken in different ways than we're broken, but they were broken in some similar ways too. And they had developed all kinds of factions. Some of those factions were around people, right? Some people claimed to be following different kinds of leaders. And so, depending on which leader was your leader, right? Um, I mean, we don't have that going on here, but you can imagine, I mean, you could even imagine a congregation, right, that everybody had their favorite pastor. I belong to Mark, and I belong to Michael, and I belong to Patty. Um, and we, we certainly know churches who've actually split and divided on that kind of basis, where people couldn't ag agree, and so one one faction left and started their own church, right? Unfortunately, that happens way too often. We're not there here. Again, you might have a preference for who you like to hear preach. That's not the same thing, right? Um, but Paul's addressing this. And there's also these factions around people who have what they believe are better gifts from the Spirit. Some think that they have gifts that are more important than others. And Paul particularly thinks that some people in the Corinthian church uh, think that those that are, that are a little more flashy maybe, a little more, uh, seem to be a little bit more um, supernatural or um, you know, speaking in tongues and things like that, uh, that, that seem to uh, be remarkable um, maybe doing miracles, those kind of things. The people who have those, have been given those gifts by the Spirit, um, there seemed to have been a temptation to think that somehow they were better than those who had some of what were regarded as the lesser gifts. And, and you, can, you can see that happening, right? Um, you can imagine, and that meant that some people felt better about themselves and some people felt sort of less than others. Um, and again, it, it just can be a kind of natural thing. 
Um, I mean, I teach the Virgil Anderson Sunday School class. This is probably the largest Sunday School class in Johnson City. I must be something. Right? You quietly write encouraging notes to people that no one ever knows about. That can't be very important. I clean up after communion, on communion Sundays. That can't be very important. I mean, you can see how that would work. Um, and Paul ha will have none of this. He will, ha he will have absolutely none of this. And so, in, in his letter, in the 12th chapter, he says something like this. Now there are varieties of gifts. This is beginning in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. Okay? So there are varieties of gifts, varieties of services, varieties of activities, but it's the same spirit that activates, animates each of those. And then it goes on to talk about the body. And this is the metaphor that's, again, very similar, in some ways, I think, even more powerful than the sort of rowing crew analogy. Here's, here's the body. It's the, the oneness and diversity of a body. This is verse 12. For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into the one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Okay. Jews and Greeks were really, really different. Didn't hang out with each other. But in the one body, they now began to hang out with each other, even eat together, which had never, ever been seen before. So in this unity and diversity was itself part of the witness of the early church. It's what it made it so remarkable. You needed God to explain what was going on. But the body does not consist of one member, but many. So it's one, but it's many. So what do you do with the many? If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if an ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, Paul's having fun here. Can you imagine a whole body being an eye? So it's like cartoon, you know, this is like a Pixar. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? 
But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say that to the hand, I have no need of you. I'd be tempted to say that, right? Look around the church and think, not just this church, but the larger body of Christ, say, we don't really need you. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the foot, I have no need of you. On the contrary, now here's, here's where Paul really upsets their expectations. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. And those of the members of the body we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas the more respectable members, they don't need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior members, that there may be no dissension within the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So this challenge of unity within diversity goes back to the earliest days of the church. This is not a new challenge. But part of what it's important to be clear about is what really matters, what's essential. And how do we take all the gifts, all the differences that can be used to God's glory? How do we get them, how do we get all of us paddling in the same canoe in the same direction? So that brings us to this, this challenge, right, about in all, in, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty. And so how do we discern what the essentials are and, in, and how do we even think through what might be non-essential? Now again, when I say non-essential, don't hear unimportant, right? It just means they are things that if they went away, we could still be the church. And Bickerton uh, notes that the, the Moravian church actually has some wisdom on this that he appropriates, and I think he might be wise in doing this. He says the Moravians talk about two different kinds of non-essentials, because even the non-essentials aren't all, all on the same level, right? And it calls one of them um, are things that we might call incidentals, right? They're just kind of incidental, that they, nothing really seems to hinge on them at the end of the day. Um, should the choir and the pastor wear robes? Okay, um, it's a nice tradition, some churches have, but I'd like to think that most of us would agree 
that if the robes went away, we could still be the church. Right? Nothing. If the pads and the pews went away, it would be uncomfortable. And it would be much harder to sleep. Um, but we could still be the church. Right? If we changed the color of the carpet. Right? If we painted the walls a different color. If... Um, if we sang different kinds of music, if, if somebody, somebody just went crazy on us and changed the order of the service. I mean, those feel like they're incidental, that they don't even necessarily say anything about the gospel. Now, maybe they could. Maybe you could make them. But it, it, you'd have to work hard. Okay? And so those seem, those are the easy ones. That's like the five services. Right? But then the Moravians say there's, there's kind of a different category that's, that seems quite a bit more important, but still might not be essential. This is, this is a hard category. And the Moravians call it ministerials. So there's incidentals and ministerials. And ministerials comes from the root ministry, right? In other words, these are things that actually minister to, support the essentials, while not yet necessarily rising to the level of being essential. Okay? Um, now that gets tricky. That gets tricky. So let's think of some examples. What if in the United Methodist Church, or some other church, pick another church. It's always easy to pick another church. But no, we should stick with the United Methodist Church. What, what if for some reason, it's hard to us to imagine. What if in the United Methodist Church, the clergy went away? Okay. Now the Moravians would say, now the clergy are ministerials. They, they support the essentials. And we can be really, really glad that we have them. But if clergy, if this class of people, this group of people that we have, the United Methodist Church, went away, could we still be the church? It would be hard. It would be hard. And that, that might be uh, a commentary on us more than anything. Right? That, that might be uh, a tough pill to swallow. So, again, it doesn't mean they're not important. It doesn't mean we wouldn't rather have them than not have them. It doesn't mean we're trying to get rid of them. It just means it's just trying to bring some clarity to what essential is, because it's really hard. Once you start getting talking about these kind of things, it's hard to get clear about like, what's really essential. So maybe the clergy. Um, take a harder one in some ways, at least in some traditions. Uh, we have all kinds of of rituals that we do in certain kinds of ways in different traditions across the Christian faith. Okay. 
So for example, um, think about baptism, okay? Think about baptism. Now there are some traditions in the Christian faith that have deep convictions about how much water should be applied in baptism. I come from such a tradition. I was reared in such a tradition, so I'm, I can pick on my own tradition that I grew up in, right? Um, and they have strong theological reasons for why one mode of baptism gives a, bitter, a better picture of what they think baptism theologically is, right? Dying and rising. Um, and so for them, if the person isn't immersed, then it feels like a deficient baptism, right? But the Moravians would say that that's a ministerial, right? That serves the gospel, that serves the essentials, but it is not itself essential. Because if you consider it to be essential, then anyone who doesn't have it is somehow sub-Christian, which would exclude most of the Christians around the world. And that, that obviously would cause division. And so one of the, one of the things that the Moravians say is, is to make sure that our if, if our rituals and the ministerials need to serve the gospel, that they also ought not to do harm to the body of Christ. Right? They shouldn't do harm to the body of Christ. And if I insist that if you haven't been fully immersed, that you aren't fully a Christian, that seems to do harm to the body of Christ. And so it seems like you're using, again, an important ritual. Not, no one's trying to get rid of it. And no one's certainly saying that they have to stop doing it the way they're doing it. Or just even change their theology. It's just, I mean, one way of thinking about it is if the essentials, if the, if the church grows out of this great tree of the essentials, is it possible there are numerous branches on that tree? And what you want to be careful of, but what's always easy to do because we're all provincial in some way, it's easy for me to be on one little twig up in the upper left-hand corner of this one branch of the tree and say, I am the true church. Only I am the true church. And just forget about, and as if all the rest of the tree could just be lopped off. And this is important when you think about even United Methodism being a worldwide church. Right? The church is really, really different around the world, and the way the church gets lived out is really, really different around the world. And, you know, when I traveled to Kenya, it made it, reminded me of how easy it is to think about the world church and the differences when you're somewhere else. And it's hard to bring that back home sometimes, right? Um, I think I may have told you this as we close. Uh, when I was in Kenya, it became clear to me that it would be, I would never, when I went to Kenya and, and worshiped with the churches there, it never would have occurred to me to tell them that they need to sing my music, right? In fact, some of the most uncomfortable times I was in Kenya was when they were singing the Western music that 
missionaries brought them generations ago. It just seemed so weird. And I think they mainly sang it for us because they wanted us to feel at home. That's a nice gesture. But it wasn't theirs. I mean, they had no heart for it. It just felt like they were singing somebody else's music. But when they sang their music, it was incredibly inspiring, right? Then I think, and, and, and I love that. I, and I had no desire for them to sing my music, but how come I'm not that charitable when I'm sitting in Muncie? Why is it I want people to sing my music at Muncie? Why, why am I not willing to say, well, these, these people over here in this service, I mean, that's a beautiful service too, right? And why can't there be room for that? And why can't we glory in that rather than somehow being perturbed by that or annoyed by that? Um, I wasn't annoyed at all in Kenya, but I can find myself occasionally annoyed here. What is that about? Something's going on there. Just too, too tiny a vision of what God's doing in the world. And so there's a lot more to say. We'll have to say some more next week because, as always, we're out of time. And I didn't even have time to get in trouble today. That's disappointing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll save it. Yeah, there's always, uh, it's always another day to get in trouble. But be thinking about this. I mean, I think this is really helpful because I think you might find that a lot of the things that we argue about in congregations are either incidentals, and that would be really sad, um, but also ministerials, which again, doesn't mean they're not important, doesn't mean we're trying to get rid of them, doesn't mean we wouldn't embrace them, doesn't mean that we wouldn't care to have them and keep them if we could. It just means we might need to be careful about making them essential and dividing over them, doing harm by means of them. We'd want to avoid that if we could. So try to think of some examples maybe this week, and we'll come back to this uh, next week as we, we start Holy Week next week. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you have made us one in Christ. We confess that we're often not very good at living into that oneness, we pray you would give us clarity of thought, graciousness of action, and wide and generous hearts with each other as we seek to discern how to more faithfully be the body of Christ for the world, to your glory, to extend your kingdom, and to bring about your ultimate purposes of reconciling all things in Christ, in whose name we offer this prayer and our lives.